As the holidays approach, shoppers will be on the hunt for a bargain. But not all of them will just be sifting through the clearance rack. Some will hit the streets of New York City in search of a steal on the black market. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. From fake designer handbags to knockoff Rolexes, you can still find a whole lot for sale on the black market. Even body parts. That's right, body parts. This week we're talking about con men, hustlers, and the black market. Our first guest is retired NYPD sergeant and John Jay School of Criminal Justice professor Joseph Jackalone. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So give us some background on your role in law enforcement. I spent over 20 years in the New York City Police Department. I retired uh, October 31st of 2012 during the middle of the storm of the century, which kind of sums up my whole career. Uh, and I had a variety of different jobs, um, but I ended up, I was the commanding officer of the Bronx Cold Case Squad, so I dealt with all the old homicides, rapes, missing persons right here in the Bronx. Uh, we were in the, located in the 5-0 precinct. We had all 11 precincts that we were responsible for, and uh, you know, pretty much citywide unit too, so it was a very interesting job and something that's rewarding when you can finally close a case that's like 20, 30 years old. What inspired you to go into law enforcement? Well, I mean, if you would ask my parents when I was younger, they would probably thought I would have been a fireman. My uncle was a fireman. He put me to the firehouse and the trucks and stuff, but when it came time to take the test, uh, the fire department wasn't hiring. So my dad was like, well, just take the police test and see what happens. Because at the time, you could lateral over. You could just go from the police department into the fire department. But by the time that job came around, I had already got promoted to sergeant. So at that point, I wasn't going to give up my, you know, seniority, my supervisory position. So I just stuck out. You know, that's it. We brought you in today to talk about the black market, specifically Mm -hmm. in New York City. How do you define the black market? Well, black market is like the old saying, you know, wherever there's a buyer, there's a seller. So, I mean, that's pretty much what you're dealing with. Most of the black market that we see now today happens on the Internet. So it's not as uh, covert as it used to be, you know, in basements and cellars and different places throughout New York City. But those things are still alive and well, and they they run the gamut, too. I mean, everything from drugs to body parts. To body parts? Sure. We had a big case here in New York. It was actually New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. There was a New Jersey dentist who was at the head of the ring. Uh, seven funeral directors from here in New York City and Queens and the Bronx uh, selling body parts and tissues. And uh, they were replacing – They were actually, it was really the bones what they were getting the uh, the big money for. Uh, I think was the, at the last one they at trial, I think they had accused them of over $5 million worth of thefts and just body parts. Uh, big market for these things, whether it's uh, for tissues, for uh, regeneration, for implants – and also for people who do a lot of other macabre things with them. How do you so, think something like that originates? Let me sell body parts. There's a market for that. Sure. I mean, like I said, wherever there's a wherever there's a buyer, there's a seller. I mean, and it's not too difficult these days to find that buyer. I mean, you could just do a couple of Google searches or a couple of searches on uh, websites such as Craigslist and those other things, and you'd find some amazing things that people are looking to to buy and sell. So primarily when you were on the streets of New York City as a cop, what were you dealing with in the black market? What we were dealing with mainly was the the biggest item, and still today is the untaxed cigarettes. Uh, and this has been my argument all along because a lot of people say well, we should legalize drugs and tax it. And I always, say, I always point to the fact that we have a huge black market here in New York City for cigarettes because the tax here, whatever it's five, six dollars a pack, uh, makes it onerous for these, you know, the store owners. So what they do is they go to places like North Carolina uh, where they pay a quarter tax on it and they bring up a whole truckload. I mean, we're, we're talking about a million dollars just with one truckload where they'll sell the untaxed cigarettes. 
And if you recall, I mean, this was also surrounding the death of Eric Garner. Uh, they were selling untaxed cigarettes, and a lot of people said, you know, oh, well, what's the big deal? Uh, this is a multi-million dollar, if not billion dollar industry, and it also has ties to terrorist groups such as Hezbollah. So right here in in New York City. So this is something that is should be concerning for people. I mean, uh, the whole incident with Eric Garner was unfortunate, but it's just uh, another catalyst to uh, you know identify the part that this is a real problem because the taxpayers are the ones that lose at the end. Yeah, some people might say these are just small quality of life issues. Why are the police cracking down on something like this? Well, because it's also uh, it also affects the state and the economy. I mean, when you're looking at losing billions of dollars of income and revenue, uh, they don't have money for the parks and the and the police and and all the other services like the trains and everything else that we enjoy every day here in this great city. So, you know, yes, it's a domino effect. I mean, one little thing like this can lead to so many bigger things that we're unaware of. How does the NYPD go about approaching the black market? Well, mostly the New York City Police Department, for instance, it actually goes about intelligence. And I'm not talking about how smart you are. I'm talking about like the intelligence driven from what the uniform cops see and what they discover while on patrol. And that's where they invest some of the time and in, in, in effort and training some of these officers to look for some of the signs. So, for instance, anything about human trafficking of uh, young women. Uh, I, I ran into a particular case that like this in the Bronx when I was a young cop where, you know, like these mail order brides that they're being, you know, forced into here. And I mean, so some of the things that you as a as an officer, you can observe and then be able to apply for this intelligence report and, and send it over to at the time was OCCB, the Organized Crime Bureau, which they also used to have OSID, which is the Organized Crime Investigation Division, which is they recently did away with. Uh, but that's all they like the human trafficking, the drugs. All those gambling, uh, those kind of things, uh, all go through Organized Crime Control Bureau. What about the people buying and selling on the black market? What have you learned about the psyche of individuals who do these kinds of things? It's all about greed. It's all about money, um, and they're willing to take the chance. And they're also, you know, they also know the fact that uh, it's very difficult to actually build a case against them. Unless you catch them red-handed with the goods. Uh, we saw this happen down in Chinatown uh, over the last few years when they were cracking down on the um, the high-end knockoff bags, you know, where they were going after these guys. But if you could, I mean, you could you could go down there today to Canal Street and you'll still see them do it. You know, the people will walk in, they'll pull the the uh, the roll gate down, and they're and they're selling these fake uh, you know Gucci bags and stuff like that. It, it's the 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 fact is this: if you can, police department has tried to target the the buyers because if you get rid of the buyers, the sellers will dry up automatically, and that's been the thinking all along, and that's where they still do today. So yeah, so people say, well, I got arrested for buying a, a knockoff bag. Well, that's but that's part of the reason because if people get the message that if I come down here and get arrested, uh, they'll stop coming down. Now I think a lot of people might be surprised that you can get arrested. For buying a knockoff sure. bag, you you know, uh, listen. It's about you know trademark infringement, uh, copyright infringement. I mean, these are some of the things that we uh, the, the we deal with. And as a matter of fact, the police department has worked closely with the recording industry and the movie industry because they would actually go out with us and do like the DVDs when, when uh, you know, I mean, listen, if I see a brand new movie that's out there and I see it on a DVD, I, even though I'm a police officer, I know that this is, this is illegal. But we would have a representative from the movie industry working with us and the recording industry and say, yep, 
that's that's illegal. Confiscate it, make the arrest. And that's and that's what we was, we started doing you know way back when I was a part of uh, a couple of those uh, you know sort of like street raids so to speak. But these guys get slick, you know. They they have those uh, those blankets that they have everything. In. They see somebody coming, they just pick up the four corners and they're gone. But the best thing, my best advice is you know don't buy from these guys because we've all they've. They've traced this money back to some terrorist organizations, too. So, I mean, that should be the concern in New York because it's not like, oh, you're trying to get back at the, the big, huge movie industry. You can actually be funding people who are trying to hurt us. I would imagine that you can also watch the trends. You mentioned, you know, bootleg DVDs. That was a big thing in the 90s. I remember seeing copies of Ghost out there before <laughs> I would hit blockbuster video. But I'm sure when you can see the popularity of certain items, you can expect that someone will either be trying to sell knockoffs or stolen merchandise. Sure, absolutely. And and even now, there's even talking about some of the new technology with even the phones uh, being that you won't be able to use them during a movie, during a movie theater. So that's interesting because it's they're still getting bootlegged. It's just that they're doing it at a much higher quality now. So they can demand an even higher price, and people are willing to pay this because why? Tickets to movies have gotten expensive too. So anytime we see a uh, rise in, in value in something, we, we see a black market open up to it because people don't have that extra you know, disposable income to do it. And, and they, they, they feel that, you know, this is a way I can get some cheap form of entertainment, but you're actually hurting not only the economy, but you could be hurting us too. I don't know how you can top body parts, but what else has surprised you that has been sold out there? Well, I'm, I've never been part of a case for that specifically, but, you know, you know but trafficking of humans, uh, that's, mm-hmm. to me, is, is something that it's first and foremost, in my mind, and should be in everybody's mind, at any given time, there's about 80,000 missing people in this country. There's over 800,000 missing persons report that go through NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. So these are the things that I think um, the public should be aware of, and these are the th- that's the kind of black market that we should be concentrating on. They're, many of them are sold into the sex trade uh, for either prostitution or for whomever, and, and those are the kind of cases that we should be directing resources to and doing a lot more for them. Who is most likely to deal in the black market. Are we talking about, I know it's greed, there's no question about that, but do we find that oftentimes there are people who are new to this country who just are trying to make money and this is what they fall into to try to make that money? Well, I mean, that has been always been history of that, you know, where we have, you know, immigrants that have come in, they they, we, they pull them into places where there are other people that speak their languages, and then there's usually somebody within that group that has uh, taken advantage of them. We saw that with organized crime and after prohibition and, and, and that how they, they rose to power. Uh, but if you remember, a few years ago, too, there was a ship from uh, China that, that washed up on the Rockaways that had, I think, 300 people in it, you know, so it's something to be concerned about. We've had a number of instances where we got, you know, the general public seems like lose interest in these things all of a sudden. It's like on the front page news, and then like we don't hear about it anymore. It's funny where the greed lies, because the greed lies on both sides of the fence of the black market, because clearly people are out to make money, but then the greed comes in too, because wow, I got a deal. Look sure. at this that's great watch that I got for 25 bucks. Exactly. And if you can get, and, and listen, we all like a bargain, right? So we wait for things to go on sale. Um, it's just something to you know understand that as long as people are willing to take the chance, you know, they feel that they're not hurting anybody. But you know, who got hit over the head for that iPhone that you just bought? I mean, th- this is something that people need to look at. It's a moral and ethical issue, and I think we need to stress that point because some people's moral compass, though, you know, doesn't go exactly where it should, and that's and, and there is another issue. All right, Joseph, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Joseph Jackalone is a professor at the John Jay School of Criminal Justice. 
Now that we know about the black market, let's learn more about the people who work in it. Trevor B. Milton, an assistant professor in social sciences at Queensborough Community College, and Terry Williams, a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research, are the authors of The Con Men, Hustling in New York City. Trevor, hello to you. Good morning. Terry, hello to you. Good morning. So what inspired you guys to explore con artists and hustlers in New York City? Um, Well, for me, it was uh, quite a long story, but... um, I was actually conned when I first came to New York. Hmm, how so? Well, there was a uh, a man who stopped me and asked uh, very politely, could I help him? And he asked me, he says, you know, I'm trying to find my way. Could you show me how to get to this particular location? And it was at that point that before I knew it, another person had stopped and showed him a wad of money. And he said, look, if you help me, I will pay you find this address. And he took me with him for about a few minutes. And then I don't know what happened, but it was like a loss of consciousness. This person shows up. I was behind this building. And the next thing I knew, I was showing him my money. He was showing me money that he had. And there was a bag. The bag had all of our monies. I disappeared. The person disappeared. I looked in the bag, and it was empty, basically empty, because it was just paper. And how much money were you out at that point? Well, at that point, I was out $5. Okay. Because I was a student, and I didn't have much of anything. So it was that particular event which really sort of got me involved in what are con games? How do they work? Who are the people who, who do these cons? Because I actually wanted some of the money that he was showing me. I was basically conned and uh, confused by my own loss in my heart, if you will. When was this? How long ago? Oh, wow. This I was uh, about 19 years old. So uh, you said what they call larceny in my heart. So the they, Trevor, are con artists, right? They yes. sort of have a way of justifying the con, right? Certainly. Well, and what Terry's not mentioning is that this actually became one of the stories in the book. And Terry, you, you haven't named the con yet. Right. That, well, <laughs> well, well, this is called the hotel con. The hotel con because he asks you to show him show to a hotel. Show hotel, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, how the actual book came to be, um, probably four years ago or maybe three years ago, Terry and I were... We're having a conversation, and um, T- Terry's a mentor of mine, and he always advised me to keep several plates spinning when it comes to research. You know, always just kind of dip in, you know, here and there, you know, looking for new research to um, to engage in. And, you know, I was kind of asking Terry, I'm like, Terry, what are you working on right now? And he's like, I don't know, Trevor, what are you working on right now? And it was interesting because he had these this great set of field notes about con artists, and I had this great set of field notes about hustlers in New York City. And it was kind of like uh, peanut butter and, and chocolate coming together making Reese's, you know. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was a great combination and a great, ex, you know, turned and morphed into this great explanation of these, um, these people who work in the informal economy inside of New York City. So let's so, talk about the difference between con artists and hustlers because you describe the difference in yep. this book. So what are the differences? Uh, one of the main themes in the book is that there is a difference uh, well, they're the same in that they're both kind of work in the in the subterranean of the city. 
uh, underneath the, the formal economy. Uh, but con artists are, uh, confidence artists, are there to deceive. Um, and that that's pretty much if you've been conned, then you've been tricked. It, just like Terry just, just demonstrated just now. And also one of the major themes in the book, and this is, you know, Terry brought this to the book, the idea of having larceny in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, a successful con, honestly, the, the victim or the mark usually has to have a little bit of greed in them for it to work. Um, someone who's not very greedy is probably going to walk past some of these cons, but the con artist usually pulls a person in uh, with their own greed. Uh, so con artists, generally speaking, are people who try to trick others out of money, and there's plenty of that going on in New York City. Um, hustlers, on the other hand, are... I want to use the word honest, but, but the, the theme is that they're, they're natural salespersons. Uh, they're entrepreneurs. Uh, they sell anything and everything. And it, it's interesting to see... Um, how so uh, is a hustler it, then someone selling the fake Gucci bag in Chinatown? Is that a hustler? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Um, the the trick, all right. This and this is where you can have the same person who could be a con artist or a hustler. If they're selling those fake Gucci bags and they're saying that they're real, that's that's con artistry. Uh-huh. If if whereas your average person, they pretty much know that when they when you're buying a handbag off of the street, you know what you're getting, and the, and those would be hustlers. And in fact, on that note, I I had um, a short story of my own. Um, I went with somebody who wanted to get a bunch of handbags for for her siblings. And we were somewhere in Midtown, probably in the 30s, uh, along Lexington Ave. And the person that I was with was was saying, like, okay, I want to get some some knockoff handbags. Um, That guy right there. And she pointed at this guy with this hooded sweatshirt on. I have no idea how she knew that this person sold handbags. Somehow she just knew. Um, We ended up taking a long walk with this person. Um, several blocks away, we went into this luxury apartment hotel. The doorman winked at us on the way in, so he he was in on it. He knew what was going on. Uh, we went up several floors into this building, into this two-bedroom apartment, which, if I were to guess, uh, rent there is probably 8000 a month mm. or something like that. Who knows what kind of deal this person had. Uh, no furniture, no beds inside this apartment at all, just wall-to-wall bags. And all the bags were like $10. And... Um, Whomever enters that apartment knows what's going on. They know they're not legit bags, mm-hmm. uh, even though apparently they look very real. I don't have the eyes for that, <laughs> but there's a lot of people that do. But whoever goes in there has some larceny in their heart. They're looking for a deal. That's correct. <laughs> we are looking for a deal. That's sort of the you know one of the themes of what happens when you're in New York. Um, there's this sense that we. We're all looking for a deal. We're all looking for uh, for a chance to, to get something for nothing. And I think um, that makes it possible for con artists to exist in the city. Now, you guys followed real-life hustlers and con artists here in New York City. You followed them as they worked the city looking for unsuspecting suspects. How did you go about meeting and securing the trust of these individuals to follow them around? Wow, well, that's a long, very long story. Each, each um, one is different. Well, everyone is different. And I think doing this kind of ethnography, doing this kind of work means that you are, in essence, a trustworthy person. That might sound a little bit facetious, but what it means is that we have been doing this work, and I have been doing this work uh, for, for for 20-some-odd years or more, and um, we all have the ability, I think, to connect with other humans in the city. We can't do that if we are not trustworthy. We can't do this kind of research unless there are people who believe that um, 
we can be trusted. So they know you're not going to run to the cops. They know we're not going to run to the cops. We're not going to to rat on them. We're not going to inform on them. And and I think this gives us the opportunity to continue to do this kind of work that we do. And I I think this this actually might be one of the differences between sociology, we're both sociologists, and and journalism, where you know journalism is kind of looks to expose or shed light on and where we look to um, analyze and, and, and get a little deeper on the subject. And it's interesting that throughout New York City, there are these um, sometimes dangerous spaces, dark spaces, where your average person doesn't want, doesn't want to enter. But there's certain types of cred that's allowed in those spaces. Uh, I, in a past life of mine, I was a social worker, I mean, a while back. And it was interesting that I could walk into pretty much any neighborhood, any any dangerous territory, and like as soon as that was known, people were like, "Oh, well, come on in." Compared to if I were a police officer or or some type of informant, uh, and so as an ethnographer and as college professors, as researchers, you know, sometimes all we have to do is just come out and say, like, we're researchers looking into this subject, and people open up, and we both notice, and I think this probably goes for ethnography in general that. Everyone wants to tell their story. Um, even the people that have the deepest secrets, they want to tell these stories at some point. And so we're professional storytellers in that sense. Yeah, and I think it's more than I think it's more than that. I think it's something that is in our DNA as humans. We not only do we want a story, but we want uh, we want a story to be told to us, and we also want to tell stories. And as a result of that, once you run into to a person who is willing to listen. They will share just about everything to uh, with you once you establish that that bit of rapport, and and I think there there's a bit of skill involved in doing it, but for the most part, it's just the idea that you are a listener, or that you want to be a listener, and mm-hmm. as a listener, people decide that they want to tell tell their stories. One of the main stories you tell in this book is the story of a man who goes by the name of Alibi. Jones. So, mm-hmm. who is Alibi Jones? Well, there's uh, there's also something something that happens in doing this kind of ethnography or this kind of work that has a lot of chance to it. It has a lot of luck to it. We call it ethnographer's luck. But this idea of uh, uh, this fortuitous connection is there too, and that that came in the in in the name of Alibi. Alibi, of course, is a pseudonym. But he was a he was a uh, a friend of my sister's, and I did not know that he was into con oil. I knew he was a hustler of sorts, but I didn't know he was a con man, if you as it turned out. And uh, over the years, I started to record his um, his antics, and um, slowly but surely, the con artist about the con artistry uh, of his life began to emerge. And that's sort of how I met him, and that led to his crew, and eventually it led to the book that, that, that we have here. You tell the story of the first time you saw Alibi perform a scam. It took place in a department store. Yeah. What did he do? This is a funny, funny business. Alibi was taking me to, to show me how he did this particular con, which was to take a coat and uh, take it somehow back to the cashier, get the coat and get money. And so he showed me afterwards that he had the money in his coat. And I was stunned. I didn't know exactly how he did that. 
Now the question becomes uh, uh, for you and others: What happened with the con? Where was the con? Right. How did he do it? Something about con artists is that they don't want you to know everything. Kind of like a magician. Exactly. Well, he 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 <laughs> exactly. did he didn't want me to know how he did that, and so I never found out, and that's why the book you don't see how he actually did this. But I think this is part of the con artist business: is that you are not to know everything about how we do it. Yes, it's it's kind of like the magician. You say in the book, Trevor, that the con artist reads the newspapers, is aware of the latest news, and will use those events to construct a con. How do they do that? Well, and this is um, like that part in particular was was written by Terry, but it was great because we've been asked this question before and how the the con artist plays on the emotions of the time um, and definitely takes a look at, at current events. I mean, so you might have somebody who in 2001 will say that they were um, a, a firefighter who, who worked ground zero, who'd just been recently let go by the fire department, and now they're down and out on their luck. Imagine the amount of money that you can make off that type of scam. It, you know, it's very interesting that New Yorkers become extraordinarily creative when it comes to ways to either establish cons or to set cons up, and um, and there are many. But one of the things that happens, of course, in recent time is this this element of a distraction that New Yorkers, because of the new technology, for, for example, what Alibi does today in terms of a hotel con could probably not operate today because of the new technology. If you have a cell phone, you simply can look in that cell phone and tell the person, you know, oh, you're Here's looking for this address is mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. I've been conned because I was walking on the streets, paying attention to my phone. Someone brushed up against me, bottle in a bag, bottle broke. Oh, boy. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, okay, no, no problem, man. And then I was walking down the street, and he came running after me and said, you know what? My bottle was, was you know, was 50 bucks. That's all I have. Um, you know, give, give me 20, dude. Give me 20. I and see. I gave it's him the exact 20. same comment it last week. It <laughs> sounded so yeah. funny to me that when I got back to the radio station, I started Googling bottle, scam, mm. New York City, yep. because Found it was just it. so odd. And there were so many hits. So, yeah. so many yeah, yeah. hits. Well, 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 food is another one. <coughs> People also would drop food. I said they dropped the food, but this, in this case, it was the bottle. But yeah. What's great about the book is that everybody's been conned in some way. I mean, there's there's the New York City version of it, which involves the cityscape and the sidewalk so much. And then on a more national level, you have the cons that probably everybody are familiar with are, are the ones that happen online. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a prince from Nigeria. I'm a, I'm a millionaire, but I don't have a bank account. If I could just deposit a million dollars in your bank account... Would you do me that favor? You know, and that it, it still works to this time. You know, it's funny because yeah. that scam has been that's that's like almost fifteen years old at this point. But it's it, older it's, than that. It, yeah, I mean, it and it still works. It still works to this day. But then there's you know there's a numerous amounts of cons that um, if you're a new New Yorker, because I almost wanted to ask like how new were you to the city when the bottle scam happened? I am a native New Yorker. You're a native yeah, New Yorker. Yeah, born oh, in wow. the Bronx. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and, sure. and so like m- myself, I, I, I moved here from Boston. And so coming here, you know, I, was, I had a very naive uh, way of dealing with, with city dwellers. Anyone who asked for change, I'm like, hey, 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 yeah, man, you're down and out. Here you go. Uh, and then after a while, I started to hear that, you know, and this may be another con in the sense of like, you know, people who might borrow a dog for a day or they'll borrow a baby for a day. 
and then go out and beg for money on the street. And uh, you know, your, your average panhandler can make up to $100 a day in New York City. person with a baby might be able to double that. Did you get the sense that any of the con artists and swindlers you profiled saw that what they did was a true vocation? It was a job for them. Um, Steady income yeah. <laughs> for many, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a rare. It's it's more rare than anything else. So, yeah, I think it's more difficult for, to find a person who does it full-time. Uh, that's why the, you see so many different v- varieties of doing conning or hustling because you can't stay with one for, for, for very long. And a lot of the hustlers we spoke with, all of them seem to have, like, a day job that they were working towards or they had just been let go of. I loved reading the glossary in your book because there were so many terms that I was just so, so unfamiliar with. Like, I thought I knew what a babysitter was, but apparently (laughs) I didn't know what a babysitter was. What's a babysitter? Well, um, a babysitter is usually, uh, it's basically someone who will sit in an, an apartment with a kilo or more of drugs until... Uh, they're passed on until someone picks the drugs up and that sort of thing. But it's usually someone who will hold a large amount of, sometimes it's money, but usually it's drugs for a courier or someone to deliver the package. The book is The Con Men Hustling in New York City. The authors are Terry Williams and Trevor B. Milton. Terry, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, George. Trevor, thank you. Thank you for having us. Trevor B. Milton is an assistant professor in social sciences at Queensborough Community College. And Terry Williams is a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research. Their book is called The Con Men, Hustling in New York City. It's published by Columbia University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.